0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. It is Saturday, the 18th day of August 2012. I'm your host, Jake Counts. TJ Smith couldn't be with us this morning, so I'll be anchoring the broadcast uh, solo. So a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Uh, it's been a, it's been an interesting week from a lot of different perspectives, and one of the topics that I wanted to cover today was um was derivatives what are derivatives how that affects the marketplace and um and why you don't hear about them so much so i'll get into that i also want to talk about um my my boy john corzine from mf global evidently nobody's going to get in trouble for stealing two billion dollars through segregated accounts or it's one billion or whatever it is uh I want to get into the paul ryan choice a little bit and we we touched on it briefly but i put a uh I put a little compilation together on my Facebook page and sent it out to everybody, you know, just showing that um, rhetoric doesn't equal voting record for the most part. So I wanted to get into all of that. But, um, you know, from a, from a broad perspective, I want to cover the news quickly and then transition into some of these topics because these are the things that we need to have a discussion on as a group, as a collective. We need to know what's going on because, you know, the only way to beat the system is to have an informed population and when i say beat the system basically not let the system gobble you up i was um was talking to a couple of friends last night and we had a a pretty lengthy discussion and in essence what came about from the discussion was um it's typically throughout history it's it's always going to be the government and i don't mean the government as some big monolith or anything like that i mean there's always going to be a ruling class that's going to get in control, and they're going to try to expand power. And anytime there's a war or any kind of crises, they will utilize the crises in order to to gain more authority, expand power. And it's always been the the people versus, quote-unquote, the man is what most people call it. But um, it's uh, it's government, so people always have to fight back the government as far as overstepping bounds, taking civil liberties, and the only way that you do that is you have an informed population. And we got on the discussion last night of the SOPA and ACTA thing, and the reason that, uh, that SOPA didn't get through and the reason that uh, CISPA didn't get through – and they were going to try a thing. I think it was called ACT. I might have just made that up, but I'm pretty sure that that was something being kicked around. Internet censorship bills. The reason that these things didn't come to fruition is is they'll have the rumblings of something like that start where it's, where it's uh, legislation getting drawn up by a couple of people having backers to the legislation – and then they'll start having their PR roll out and, and then what'll happen is it'll it'll start to swell and gain momentum. Well, if it's something that's really, you know, not in the best interest of the population, if the population's informed and awake and, and understands what the overall goal of the legislation is, and the population starts to speak out and word starts to get around and then you start having, you know, Twitter bombs and stuff like that where people are tweeting the legislation back and forth and talking about how it's not going to be a good thing for us as citizens. That's when the legislation will typically just fizzle out and go away. So the reason that we're in some of these predicaments that we're in currently is due to past legislation, due to you know the the removal of Glass Steagall, which I'll get into that on the on the financial side later. But you know the NDAA, things like that. The reason that these things don't get squashed, for lack of a better term, is the population for the most part doesn't really care because. I think the overall perspective of the population is that, well, these people were smart enough to get elected, so if they're smart enough to get elected, they they should be smart enough to run the country. Great in theory, but other than the fact that there's always going to be you know, special interests involved, people always in this person's ear whispering sweet nothings about free money only if you vote for this legislation – and stuff like that, lobbying, goes on all the time, and it's gone on since the beginning of time. You always have little factions that will break out within within Congress or within anything, within Parliament, and they will always have little groups that will, will try to suck people in due to, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of deal. So the only way that democracy will really truly work is if the population is informed, and and goes out and and literally fights for civil liberties not fighting in the actual physical sense of the term but in the information in the information war they get the information out that the population needs to know and then the population can make a a rational decision with the proper information not misinformation or disinformation which you know governments as well as um as well as big propaganda machines like uh Fox and CNN have run misinformation you know, campaigns before to try to get people behind certain things, whether it's war or whether it's, you know, policies or whether it's gun control. There's always going to be this little internal battle. And the more astute we are and the more that we can comprehend that we're getting fed propaganda in certain scenarios, then you will be able to you sift through all of the garbage that gets spewed at you and make a rational decision just based on the facts, you know. No, no verbiage. Just, just give me the facts, and then I'll make the decision from there. So, after that, just kind of letting you know what what people are asking me, because you know I want to have conversations with people. I want people to understand what's going on now. And the only way that you're going to understand what's going on is sharing information with one another, having documents to back this information up. And you know, in essence, that's why we created the broadcast here. Is to is to give people a jumping off point from from just an, an information perspective, grabbing pieces of information that that pertain to civil liberties, that pertain to you know sovereignty and stuff like that, and then disseminating them out to the public so that the public can make informed decisions or just even have informed conversations with their family, friends, so on and so forth. So. Let's jump right into the news. The first thing I wanted to cover today was a, a Financial Times article, and, and and once again, I will post all of these to the site um, a little bit later on this afternoon. So you can go to wearenotcattle.net, click on the links for the show for today, and then I will have hyperlinks to all these articles so you can read them for yourself and understand that, that, that what I'm telling you is um is documented. Not just from one source but from multiple sources because you always need to, as Reagan says, trust but verify. You know, we don't want to get into a he said she said kind of thing. We just want the facts so we can make our decisions. So the Financial Times article says that Robin Hood Mayor vows to occupy banks. Well, in essence, there's this gentleman that that has made a movement in Spain because they're imposing austerity measures, which I'll get into a little bit later because that all kind of wraps into the economy and, and what really goes on. But he's basically taking uh, it's around 500 people, and they're and they're basically you know going up to whether it's grocery stores, they're occupying the grocery stores and giving giving food to the people on the austerity on the austerity side that have had all of their all of their rations cut and they're you know basically starving. So he's a real modern day Robin Hood, for lack of a better term. And just an excerpt from the article, it says – he, he basically goes on to say, and this is a quote, The euro is a fraud that enriches some and impoverishes the rest. The families are going hungry, small farmers are getting ruined, and we're asking for a change in the political model. That's it, everybody. Once you figure out that, that the euro, which has been built up to basically consolidate power and throw everything into the World Bank and the IMF and give them the stranglehold on the economy – once, you, once you've got it, and this guy seems like he does, then, then you're always going to be infighting with with big establishment types, which I'm going to get into the, what the big establishment guy says a little bit later. But this guy has figured out that, hey, the only way that we're going to be able to save our nation, other nations, is by just saying no to the euro. So it goes on to say within the article that Spain has a 30% unemployment rate and in, in his area, excuse me, that um, – which which is the highest of any region within the European Union, and it basically goes on to talk about the austerity measures and what they're imposing as far as the cuts go. The the cuts are going to to close 19 hospitals um, with all of these different services, health and human services, and get rid of uh, 60,000 public workers in four uh, local government workplaces. So Once again, if you you get into the financial side of it, anytime that you run into financial hardships, the the obvious idea is let's cut. Let's cut spending. Let's cut spending. Well, if you cut these programs, if you impose austerity measures on people that are already living on fixed incomes, you're basically signing their death sentence. And I know that sounds really bad, but in essence, that's what it is. You're taking somebody that's living paycheck to paycheck that can barely make it now, and you're going to cut how much money they're going to be receiving – so not only are they barely skimming by now but now you're taking the funds that they're getting and you're cutting them back even more and and it's just going to snowball the problem it's not going to fix anything it it sounds good to get votes and stuff like that but it's really not going to fix the problem and the problem is the central bankers the global banks the world bank the IMF you know they got caught fixing the libor rates which are which are loan rates so these people understand what they're doing and the fact that they got caught with the Libor scandal and nobody's getting in trouble, and the MF Global stuff where nobody gets in trouble, I mean it's just it's free reign on the population now, and it's it's the bankers versus basically the bankers versus the world, and and right now the bankers are winning. So, you know, getting into the next article I wanted to talk about, which is um, an article from from it's actually not even an article, it's just an excerpt from the from the from the grace uh, grace commission report and the grace commission was under ronald reagan they talked about within the report it talks about how your tax money none of your tax money in the united states none of it goes to paying off the debt the national debt all of the money that we pay in income taxes only two-thirds of it ever get allocated Two-thirds of it get allocated towards interest on the debt. So, So the more money that the Federal Reserve pumps into the population, the more debt we take on, the more interest we have to pay. And even back in the 80s, we weren't paying anything on the principal. We were just paying the interest. So we're just getting more and more in debt. And so when you look at it from a global perspective, this eternal borrowing that we're doing from the Fed can't be sustained. And I've got a bunch of clips that I'm going to get into here that's, that's basically going to talk about how all this stuff comes to light. So the Grace Commission article, or actually the Grace Commission, you guys can look it up on uh, YouTube. I mean not YouTube. You can look it up on, on any search engine and pull it up. It goes on to say that fun- if fundamental changes are not made to federal spending – remember, this is back in 83 – as compared to the fiscal 1983 deficit of $195 billion, the deficit will reach over ten times that amount, two trillion projected in 2000. But it even got worse than that because of the removal of Glass-Steagall, the the com- the combination of the commercial lenders and the investment banks. So now the commercial lenders, and investment banks can take your mortgage, your house, and and package it up into a couple of different, you know, a couple of different packages, sell it off, invest it, that kind of thing. So now we're into we're into the point of of la la land where nobody owns the deed and there's a, an interesting book out called clouded titles I want to read that which basically talks about nobody can really find these titles of these of these homes that have been you know back in the arm days and stuff like that where they're getting foreclosed on nobody can find the title because it's just been bought and sold so many times due to the combination of these two entities. So it goes on to it says in that year, the debt would be about $13 trillion. Excuse me. This is back to the Grace Commission. So in, he talks about only 17 years from now, and he said in that year, the federal debt would be about $13 trillion, pretty close. And the interest alone on the debt would be $1.5 trillion per year or $18,500 per year per current taxpayer. I can't pay $18,000 to the government, and that's just on the interest. From the money that we're borrowing from the private Federal Reserve, so once you start doing the math by yourself, you know I'm probably not alone in the fact that I'm, I'm I can't pay 18.5 thousand dollars a year to the federal government just to pay the interest on the debt. You know, once you look at it from that perspective, you can start to see how all this stuff becomes unsustainable. So I'm going to go to a clip here that talks about how it's not. It's not the debt itself. It's the interest. Once again, borrowing money from a private bank at interest from – our government borrows money from a private bank at interest and then has to pay not only the premium or the principal back, but we have to pay the interest back. And according to the Grace Commission, it's – I mean it's pretty spot on. It's about 1.5 trillion per year that we have to pay the private Federal Reserve just to stay afloat. So here's the clip, and then on the on the back side, we'll we'll break this down a little bit further. And then we'll talk about how all this stuff affects what's going on now, and then I'll get back to a couple other articles, and then I'll dive into the derivatives and and austerity and what austerity really is and take a deeper dive into that. So here's the here's the clip about how the interest is what is really causing our issues, and then I'll get into my philosophy, which, once again, I'm not a scholar, but I understand just basic principles of economics and how the Hamiltonian model might get us away from some of the stuff that we're, that we're currently under and will not only create jobs, but it will also, you know, remove us from the Federal Reserve system. So well, here's it's no
2: like secret it. to any American that we're living in very precarious times. Americans are being robbed blind, and they don't even know who's doing the robbing.
0: I mean, we clearly are, you know, in a bus, and we're heading for the edge of a cliff. And there still is probably time to change course. The only problem is the people driving the bus don't realize that there's a cliff there yet.
2: If the problem that's uh, grinding the economy to a halt is too much debt, and if nobody in the government and either party is looking at solving the debt problem then the answer is it's going to go uh to into a depression as far as the eye can see
0: and so we're going to have a massive massive uh recession or let's call it a depression while the economy rebalances away from a service sector economy towards a good producing economy away from a borrow and spend economy to a save and produce economy that's what we need to do we can't get from where we are to where we need to be without a severe depression what can government do the sad answer is under our current monetary system nothing it's not going to get any better until the root cause of the problem is understood and addressed. there isn't enough stimulus money in the entire world to get us out of this hole why Debt. the national debt is just like our consumer debt it's the interest that's killing us
1: so that was that was out of a um it was a clip from a movie called the the secrets of oz and um you can find that via um it's on the uh, the youtube channel under we are not cattle tv you can watch it there you can all watch it on the website it's under my documentary tab so it's a really informative uh it's a really informative documentary which basically talks about you know how how the fed loaning us money and interest has been a, a real challenge and since 1913 you know we we're basically owned by this monolith and um it's a international global bank that's private that we don't know who the shareholders are but yet the shareholders are guaranteed rate of returns of uh, i think it was 7 percent or something like that but any time that you pose that question to somebody that's a that's either worked for the fed or that is that has um, been involved with um, with Goldman Sachs and, and some of the guys that are actually you know as far as we know shareholders of the Federal Reserve anytime you deal with, with somebody from that entity they all have the same talking point well oh it's not the fed it's not the fed no you guys it is the fed so as we talked about, it's the interest that's killing us. So, so how do we reverse all of that? Well, one of the ways that we can reverse it is, um, is by bringing in Glass-Steagall and start to separate the commercial and then investment banks again. Now, what I would also do is put lending restrictions out. So lending restrictions are – you know, in fractional reserve banking, you have to have 10% of whatever your overall loan is. You have to have that in reserves. And this will also tie into derivatives and how derivatives are off-balance sheet, which makes them very, very dangerous. So in essence, you have to have capital allocation off to the side in order to – in case a, a, a loan goes bad. You have to have the capital set aside, and when Glass-Steagall was implemented, you had to have 10% of that cash that you lent out. So if you lent out 10 grand, you had to have $1,000.00 in reserve in case that, in case that loan went bad. So it's in essence, you know, if you get enough of these loans out there, you're going to have 10% fail. But if you have enough loans out in the marketplace and you have enough capital allocated off to the side, if it fails, it's not really a big deal because you've already got the capital allocated for it. Well, Glass-Steagall once again, loosen the lending restrictions. The Fed loosened lending restrictions by dropping interest rates down to zero. And so what happens is you now have – when the larger banks can't make money from the Federal Reserve at interest, when they can't make their interest, they're going to take on more risk because if the interest rates are low, they want a rate of return. So in order for them to get a rate of return, they have to take on more debt and they have to take on you know, more risk. So here is a Peter Schiff clip about how Wall Street was part of the issue and – What it talks about is keeping interest rates really, really low basically forces the banks to be very, very risky in what they do because they have to hit profits for their shareholders, and they have to hit profits for their bottom line. So it makes them, in essence, take on more risk. And then I'll get into a Ron Paul clip on Glass-Steagall, which I played uh, last week or the week before, but it's still applicable to what we're talking about now, and it's going to even broaden your horizon as far as what is really going on with the economy. And then I'll dive into the derivatives, and then I'll catch up with some other news on the backside. Why do we have a stock market bubble? You know, we had a stock market
0: bubble because the Federal Reserve was too easy. They were too loose in the 1990s. Uh, money, interest rates were too low. We created too much money. And uh, that fed the the investments in the stock market. And we, we had a lot of malinvestments, right? We had companies were created that never should have existed. They were created not because they could generate a profit, but because they could go public, because investors wanted these stocks. It didn't matter that they could make money. So what did they do? They took land, labor, and capital. They took all the factors of production, and they combined them in ways that actually destroyed value. But it didn't matter because these companies got financing. The Fed made the financing cheap, so they were able to flourish. They were able to flourish despite the fact that they were losing money. You know, the old the, the saying used to, be, used to be they lose money on every sale, but they make it up on volume.
1: Which is exactly what happened with Enron Corporation. Enron only had a couple of segments that actually made money for them. And if you guys haven't seen Enron, the smartest guys in the room, I would highly recommend going to watch it. It does have a slant to it, so there are some factual inaccuracies with it. But overall, it's a, it's a very good documentary as, as far as explaining how these large corporations will take um, different risks, extremely large risks, in order to maintain profits. And in the Enron situation, um and once again if you if you haven't seen the documentary, please go watch it because it's it's absolutely bonkers what these guys did. But they got into they got into the electrical market. Well, the president at the time, George W. Bush, or was newly elected president. Um uh, they got into the market right before he he came on as a as president elect. Um what they did was they were they were trading energy futures. So in order, to, in order to drive the price up so that Enron can make more money, they would call up the power stations and impose rolling blackouts. This is a corporation calling a power company and saying we're going to shut the grid down for a couple of hours so we can spike the price of energy and then sell it and make huge profits. And there's audio tapes of, and it's in the documentary, audio tapes of the brokers calling up the the people at the grid saying, Hey, let's just shut it down for a couple hours, and they're like, Okay, and like can you bring it back online and say four hours? But, yeah, sure, we can do that. So it really was a conspiracy. And I know that word gets thrown around a lot, and as soon as the population hears conspiracy, they think it's a lie, it's something that's not true. Well no, the definition of conspiracy, which is It's kind of funny. My friend said this the other day. He said even the definition of the word conspiracy today in the population is in itself a conspiracy because the population believes it's something completely that it's not. A conspiracy just means that you have a group of people that conspire against another entity. So when you go to get a car loan, you're being conspired upon. Because they're going to try to make profits off of you, so you're going to have a little group trying to make profits off of you, and they're scheming together in order to conspire to get a higher rate from you. Not necessarily meaning it's bad, it's business, but from the pure definition of the word, it's a conspiracy. So when you have things like this where they're calling up and having the power plant shut down, and then they'll bring them back online in order to make profits, and they were talking about how much money they were going to make and all of this stuff, and then it all comes out. You know, much like what you know, what Peter Schiff said, there's you know, they made the money too available and then they make up all of their losses in volume. So Enron had severe debt all over the map. But they kept driving the stock price up by doing, you know, flash trades, things like that. Well, not really flash trades, but you know, just manipulating the marketplace in order to drive their stock price up to make it look good for their investors. And then the investors on the top end sold off um on the high side all the while you know reassuring that on the downside that, that everything was going to bounce back, the company was going to be fine. People had tons of money tied up into pension funds. I think it was like almost two billion dollars tied up into pension funds and retirement funds with the uh, with the Enron stock, and when the stock dropped, I mean they lost everything they lost their pension funds, they lost their retirement. Because Enron was one of those solid companies, so it brings me to the MF Global. What MF Global did was something very similar, and it is absolutely bonkers to watch this thing play out. And now it comes out that nobody's going to get in trouble for this. Nobody's going to get arrested. Uh, Corzine might might face, um, uh, I think it's civil charges, and he he was the uh, CEO at the time, and. Much like the CEO of Enron and the president of Enron said that they, they they didn't have their notes in front of them, so they couldn't speak to the questions being asked. These are all on man, so you guys can go watch them if you want. I've watched them. It's 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 crazy the how how they just lawyer around everything and, and speak in vague generalities, but answering the question but not answering the question, kind of deal. So so Corzine made a a bet. This is MF Global. Back to MF Global. Of course, I made a, a bet on the euro with um, with his with with his company's money. But if the bet failed, he wasn't going to have enough money in the coffers in order to pay off the bet. So he bets on the euro. The euro plunges. He loses the bet. And so now he's got to pay up. And so what MF Global did. Because they didn't have the money in the coffers. So they go into what are called segregated accounts, which would be like uh, – a good example is if, if, you're, if you're banking with Bank of America, and a Bank of America makes a bad bet. And then they go into your private bank account and take a couple of hundred dollars in order to pay for their bad bet. That's what a segregated account is. It's, it's your individual money that is put into an account. With the bank or the investment firm having the IOU or the promissory note that they were going to pay you those funds. Remember, once you put your money into a bank, that's not your money anymore. It's the bank's money. They just write you an IOU saying this is how much we owe you. So Corzine raids segregated accounts willingly, knowingly, and it comes out in, in testimony that, that he knew about this. And in some cases, there's conflicting views, but he even authorized – the rating of segregated accounts, and basically took a bunch of people's money, and now he's not going to get in trouble. So it's really coming to the point of of ludicrous when you see what's going on with the bankers and the banking industry. They're in essence robbing the population because they know the population is not paying attention. They know that you don't follow this stuff. They they know that they can get away with it if they get if they get lawyered up and they say the right things. I mean the guys from Enron, Ken Lay, obviously he he passed away from a heart attack. Ken Lay got twenty-five years and the other guy that was the president at the time of the company, um, can't remember his name, it starts with S right now, but um you know I think it was Stiller or Still, something like that. You know, he gets he gets twenty six years in prison. These people stole millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. How they didn't get life imprisonment is is beyond me, and and how Corzine, stealing billions of segregated accounts and paying off his debt with it, is not getting in any trouble. He might face civil charges like the guy doesn't have enough money to pay off some civil charges. He's probably going to have to pay back the money, but that's beyond the point. The point is we're at a threshold now where big banks – High-powered lobbyists and corporations have gotten so entrenched in our political system that they can now do whatever they want. I mean look at what Monsanto talks about. Monsanto talks about that they're going to have GMOs everywhere, and they're not going to have to label them, and, and they're not even going to tell you what the GMO is. And this is all documented in the news. Just go Google it. Monsanto is going to have a whole buku of crops come out now. I think it was upwards of like 100 –… of GMO crops. And side note to this, look this article up. It will make you want to throw up. All of the people that work in the lab at Monsanto, the scientists, will not allow their own GMOs in the lab for them to consume. In, 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 not in the lab. In the kitchen, in the cafeteria, they won't let it in there. So these people that are, that are thrusting this stuff out into the population, they're thrusting out the GMO crops in order to make huge profits… You know, kind of like the suicide seeds that they have, and I'm getting on a Monsanto tangent, but this is just really a great example of how huge government and lobbyists and and um and huge sums of money and payoffs and bribes and you scratch your back, I'll scratch mine kind of deals end up putting the population at risk, and they don't care because you know what they ain't eating it, they've got enough money, they understand that that yeah, what they're doing might be killing us, and it might be sterilizing us, but they don't care. And that's the one thing that you have to get over is that corporations are there to make money. They're there for the bottom line. They're not there to protect the individual. That's our job. As the citizens, that's our job to say no. That's our job to say no to to large corporations. It's our job to say no to big government if you're against big government and, and, and austerity measures, much like what they were doing over there in Spain. Just say no. But we're so decadent now we would have so much prosperity over such a long period of time that the United States had just become apathetic. It really has. You don't even care because you just think, once again to my original point of the show this morning, you just think that since these guys are smart enough to get elected, they're smart enough to run the country, which is not the case. And I'm not saying every politician's bad but there are a lot of people that are in congress and in the senate that are not there for your interest they are there for their interests and they are there for their buddies interests much like in the book superclass what he talks about the upper elite don't make decisions based on how it's going to affect the population they make decisions based on how it's going to affect their inner circle and the relationships within their inner circle and the business deals that are in that inner circle so once we can understand that, now we can really have an idea of what we need to do. Basically what happened is Thomas Jefferson decided that he was going to build a country along with the founding fathers that was going to be driven by the people. It was going to start from the bottom up. It was going to drive from the citizens all the way up to the president, the executive, or the executive branch, the judicial, and, and, and all of that. It's all going to be checks and balances the whole nine. But what's happened now is that we've taken the pyramid that was usually structured as as a as a citizens first and then everything rolls up to the pyramid is now flipped on its head. And now government dictates to the citizens what the citizens can do, which is not what this representative democracy was supposed to be. So how does all this happen? It happens through exactly what we what I've discussed so far is it happens through lobbyists, it happens through um larger corporations getting in bed with government, which you know is called you know fascism for the most part. Exactly what happened in, in Soviet Russia. And then you have the you know combine that with the, the decadence and the and the uninformedness. I just made up a word there. But having that part of the population that just doesn't have a, a freaking clue what's going on has just made a complete cauldron and just an, an, a horrible potion for large government and government expansion. So, getting off of that, let's I'll dive into the Monsanto thing a little bit more because I do want to talk about this. So Monsanto has these seeds, and I can't remember if they call them suicide seeds or what, but the seeds basically will purge themselves after a year. So every year you have to buy more and more seeds from Monsanto because if you have a crop that just reproduces every year, then that's not good for business because I can't sell you those seeds next year. So I need to make a, a seed that will actually just terminate itself after one, after one yield. After one yield of crop, it's just going gonna, gonna to die off. So they have the suicide seeds, and they, they've used that as their business model. And now what they're doing is they're moving towards more gen- genetically modified crops. I mean, almost all the soy is genetically modified now. Almost all the corn is genetically modified. And so what really becomes a problem is that there are not a lot of tests that are done on human beings as, as a result of what GMOs are. They've got tests that have been done on guinea pigs and lab, lab rats, excuse me. And the, and the result of those studies is, is terrifying if you're an informed person and you can kind of see that you know, not a lot of regulations are going on because this is such a huge entity, that it can just go in and buy off senators and congressmen and get their laws passed, and they don't really care. They got enough money to do what they want, kind of like what Enron did. Yeah, we can just deregulate the, the energy industry, and then Bush gets up there and says that, well, it's not the federal government's job to regulate industry when, it, in essence, it is the federal government's job. He just didn't want to do it because he had a personal relationship with Ken Lay. Moving that aside… So now you have all these GMOs getting released, and the studies coming out in the guinea pigs and the lab rats say that within two generations, three generations tops, that that the, the lab rats are becoming sterile. Gut disorders, all kinds of things. I've read you the documents on our past shows. So no, none of the studies have been done on humans, so we don't really know what's going to happen. But just by deductive reasoning, you can kind of see that, well, if it's sterilizing the rats and the guinea pigs, it can't possibly be good for us. But meanwhile, they won't label any of this stuff, and now they're just going to produce more of it. So putting the population at risk both health-wise and then you have the combination of the health risk of the GMO, the combination of the derivatives bubble in the, in the financial sector, we're running into a very, very scary scenario when you have the population being deliberately dumbed down and 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 having propaganda pushed on them from every angle, whether it's a TV commercial or if it's CNN, Fox News giving you pieces of the information, and then once again the staying away from the real issues and and, and making it all about infighting and and stupid talking points, so that you argue about whether the talking point's true, not really attacking the the overall issue. So. That's going to bring me to the economic system here globally. So let's first go through what austerity is, and I touched on this briefly earlier in the show, but let's, let's take a deeper dive into it. Austerity sounds like an interesting word, but it's basically massive cuts, and it's massive cuts to pay off a debt from, from a government side of things. So they're going to cut government spending which if you're in a healthy economy is fine cut government spending you know and then you'll have a, a a better you know trickle down effect into the population but when the population is already in shackles for lack of a better term because they're on fixed incomes and and they they don't have a job unemployment rate as i read in that article earlier unemployment rates at 30% now you take the fixed income that the government is giving these people and you and you decrease it you're really playing with fire here. Because if you take somebody that's living, once again just like I covered earlier, paycheck to paycheck and then you hammer them with with cuts, now they can't even live. And now you're going to have a starving population and then the starving population is going to riot and, and you're just really asking for trouble. So austerity measures are not what's going to get us out of this stuff. It's really not. And What's very scary, moving away from the austerity point, is, um, is how these countries get into these positions in the first place. So I want to go to a clip. It's about a two-minute clip, and it's from John Perkins, who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And he goes into, in detail, how his job was to go over and get countries to sign on to debt that they know that they can never pay back from the IMF and the World Bank. And then understanding that as collateral, they would either say, you need to vote with us on this UN resolution, or you need to side with us on this, or you need to, you know, we're going to confiscate your natural resources. So going in knowing that somebody's not going to, it's kind of like loan sharking. Going in knowing that the, that the customer is never going to be able to pay back the interest, much less the principal on the loan, exactly what happens now with the Fed loaning the money to the United States knowing that they're never going to pay it back, and you basically pose collateral that is very outlandish, knowing that you're going to get that collateral because they're going to default on the debt. So here's the clip.
2: So what I did specifically was identify countries that had resources that corporations covet, like oil, for example, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of the other big banking organizations. But the money would never actually go to the country. Instead, it would go to our own corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, huge projects like uh, big, big uh, power plants, hydroelectric plants and transmission lines and distribution stations and multi-industrial parks, things that would benefit a few wealthy families in those countries, as well as our own corporations that built them, but wouldn't help the majority of the people who don't have enough money to buy much electricity, can't get jobs in industrial parks, who so don't hire many people, and yet the people of the country would be left holding this huge debt that they couldn't repay. So at some point we go back in and say, hey, since you can't pay your debts, uh, essentially give us your resources, your oil or whatever. Sell to us at a very low price without any environmental or social regulations, without having to take care of the people in the country that we're, that, that we're exploiting, or allow us to build a military base on your soil or vote with us on the next critical United Nations vote. And in a few cases where we couldn't convince presidents to take on those deals, which were really bad for their countries, uh, the jackals step in and they either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. And, you know, I talk about my own personal experience in Ecuador with the president there, Jaime Roldos, democratically like the president, Omar Torrijos of Panama. They didn't buy into these deals. They had a lot of integrity. And both of them were, and, and they wouldn't They wouldn't listen to me. They they wouldn't buy my deal. And so both of them were assassinated.
3: Now, when they don't do the deal, the jackals come in. What do the jackals do?
2: This happen in Honduras with President Zelaya about two uh, years ago, or they and we've seen, of course, happen with the Yending in Chile and Arbenz and Guatemala and, and so on and so forth. Or uh, they assassinate the leaders, which we saw in my case with Jaime Roldos of, of Ecuador and Omar Torrijos of Panama. So they're either overthrown, and if they go kind of peacefully and they leave the country, like Zelaya did in Honduras. Okay, if they're not going to go peacefully,
1: then they're taken out. So that's how it operates. In essence, um, like you said, you sign these governments onto huge contracts, and then the government doesn't really see the money after signing on to all this stuff. It just gets shoved into the global corporations, the the global mafia, if you will. Always in bed with the big banks knowing that they're going to they're going to use the banks as leverage in order to get, like you said, those raw materials, huge government contracts. No bid contracts at that because if you bid on it, then there would actually be somewhat of a process and, and you might have um you might have some of the smaller guys winning some of these bids. But nope, just no bid contracts. You guys get this and and it's just absolutely crazy. So once you see how they set up nations. Let's talk about the financial pending collapse that, that could happen. And you know, I'm not a fear monger, so I don't want to say that it's going to happen. But but there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. Anybody that's doing any investing right now knows that. And we have uncertainty for the ones that that understand because of of what's called a derivative. Now. This might take me all of the last 15 minutes that we have in order to explain what a derivative is, but you have to understand that what you're going to be spoon-fed from the mainstream media is not going to be the truth about what's really out in the marketplace. So I'm going to give you the truth. Truth of the matter is, about three years ago, they calculated the number of derivatives out in the marketplace, and it was somewhere upwards of 70 times the global gross domestic product. Global gross domestic product. 70 times. So, if everything went bankrupt, all it'd have to do is go, it would just have to go 170th of these derivatives, have to go up, and then. The entire system collapses. So let's get into what a derivative is. Bunch of different kinds of derivatives, um, credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, which is what brought down AIG. Um, Derivatives were part of what happened in the housing crisis. But derivatives, in essence, are insurance or protection. So there's a couple of different um, videos that, that I've got posted on the on the uh, we are not cattle tv uh youtube channel that if you really want to understand it you go watch these videos and and the guy breaks it down very succinctly but uh, it's an hour and 15 minute lecture and there's two parts to the lecture so uh, just be ready to take some notes and 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 get a crash course on what these things are this is how i've kind of pieced together all the information so you can use derivatives for a multitude of different things. Uh, you can use it to hedge risk. You can use it to trade credit risk. It basically separates the, the trading asset and the risk. So here's the kicker for these derivatives. Derivatives are never on balance sheet. So it's a double-edged sword. It's not on the balance sheet, so you can, you can trade these things back and forth. and Nobody really knows about it. But also, if it was insurance that was actually on your balance sheet, you would have to have capital allocation because, once again, it's just like any loan or anything else. You have to have a contingency for failure. So you have to have some set money aside in case the derivative fails. Well, since the derivative is off balance sheet, basically thin air – then you don't have to have the money allocated off to the side in order to, to stave off any kind of economic you know, recall on the derivative or the risk. <clears throat> so how do derivatives get traded? Well, let's say you have a small corporation, and we'll call this Corporation A. And then you have a larger investment corporation, B. Now, Corporation A doesn't want to take on any more risk because they're already at a threshold where they don't think that they can occur any more risk and you know expanding their balance sheet and then and then moving themselves closer and closer toward financial bankruptcy. So what do they do? They sell the risk to the larger monolith um B company B. So they sell the risk, the insurance off to company B for a nominal fee. So it doesn't stop there. It keeps getting bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold. So in essence, company B is getting paid. Let's say it's something very simple, simple math, $10. I'm going to pay, I'm company A. I'm going to pay company B $10 in order to take on my risk, this, this one risk policy. And company B agrees. Company B absorbs the risk off balance sheet, of course, so it never really exists. According to the books, so they take they take on the risk, not having to set aside any capital allocation, nothing, and they get ten dollars. Well, let's say that company C comes along and says, "Well, I'm an even bigger company. I can take on even more risk because I have to take on more risk in order to make bigger profits." Just how it works. It's like diversifying the portfolio kind of thing. So company B sells it to company C for twenty dollars. Now company C has got the one risk policy. Company B has already made their $10. Company C makes $20 from company B. And it just gets bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold and traded. Once again, off-balance sheets nobody really knows. So now imagine when there's a recall for the actual risk. And this is the real risk that we're running into here with, with, with the economic system. … is that if the credit derivatives – and you'll hear people talk about this – if the derivatives collapse, if the derivatives bubble collapses because it's a bubble because, once again, any – fractional reserve banking doesn't yield true profits, it only creates bubbles, housing bubble, um, uh, internet bubble, and and now we have the derivatives bubble. So it just creates bubbles, and bubbles always pop, and it's like booms and busts, boom, busts, boom, bust. because, in essence, what's going to happen… is when you have these tools out there, you're going to get very, very smart people that are going to figure out how to manipulate the system and make huge profits with zero risk, which is in essence what they're doing now. And and all of these companies that are publicly traded, that are trading derivatives, their balance sheet and their books aren't an accurate reflection of how much debt and risk they have because all this stuff is off balance sheet. So when Ron Paul talks about, hey, the risk or the derivatives are going to come home to roost, or if the derivatives bubble pops, you're – I mean it's just going to be an economic shutdown instantaneously because there's going to be – all the trading is going to stop. All of this is going to stop because you can't even fathom how much risk is actually out in the marketplace, and that's why they just say, well, we think it's $1.5 quadrillion. That was three years ago, $1.5 quadrillion. so – 1,500 trillion. Just to give you an idea, that's roughly 100 times. Well, gosh, I can't even do the math. It's it, it's a once again 70 times the gross domestic product of the world. So I want to get into the Ron Paul clip that I played last week or the week before. They're all starting to run together. But it he talks about Glass Steagall and he talks about the the derivatives from the housing market. And that's not the only derivatives that are out there. And derivatives like change shape so fast, it's 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 silly. And on the backside, I'll break it down a little bit further, and and what's going to happen. And then I'll talk about the Hamiltonian model of of finance and and lending, and how that would impact the um, the economy, not only at the state level, but also at the federal and and the uh, in the national level and and then trickle out into you know global prosperity because if you have the United States which is the world reserve currency if we start becoming stronger and stronger then our dollar gets stronger then everything else will kind of you know rally around that. So here's the clip on Ron Paul from Glass Steagall and then I'll talk about um what you know and and there's a there's a uh, economist, Webster Tarpley it's very similar idea of um, of how to stimulate the economy, and I've had this conversation with a with a bunch of people, and um, and it it actually makes too much sense for the Fed to take a look at it because once again the Fed has to charge us interest. So here is the Ron Paul clip on Glass Steagall.
4: There's two different levels to this part of the conversation. One is what we're talking about yesterday, according to Bloomberg, Bank of America had uh, one of its um, subsidiary units downgraded. It it had uh, uh, its um, credit rating, in essence, uh, downgraded. And so it moved the derivatives from the Merrill Lynch unit uh, to a subsidiary that was um, insured. So uh, the uh, FDIC disagreed with the transfer, but the bank says it doesn't need their approval. And there was a, a University of Missouri, Kansas City uh, regulator said the concern is there's always going to be an enormous temptation to dump the losers onto the insured institution. Uh, there is no law that is governing, uh, governing this. So all of these derivatives, I think there's $53 trillion worth of this stuff, they try to dump into insured deposits. So if this all goes bad... Uh, the taxpayers are at least partially on the hook.
3: No, they'll they'll be they'll really be on the hook. And and already we've had a lot of those derivatives dumped on us in 08. You know, the, right. uh, some of these mortgage derivatives ended up being bought by the uh, Federal Reserve. We didn't even it didn't even have to get the Congress involved. I mean, the, the uh, Federal Reserve just did it to bail out some uh, some of the banks and uh, the corporations that were involved. So no, this is a transfer, and uh, this is why. Uh, you know, I voted against, you know, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Uh, not because I'm against banks in a free market. They can do different things, and they can invest, but they should stand to lose if they lose. But when you have the lender of last resort, and you have these guarantees and insurance backed up by the taxpayer, it just encourages this. And uh, a derivative is just a, a wild bet, and uh, they, there's nothing behind these bets. And they're backing up these bets, and they're leveraged uh, with taxpayers' money. So I think that uh, this derivative thing will explode. And it'll be much, much worse than uh, what we went through in 2008. And the fact that they did this shifting just recently means that they might think we're getting awfully close to that date uh, when it will be unsustainable.
1: Okay, so when Ron Paul says it's a bet, remember how it's separated risk. So he's exactly right. When it's a a bet, it's a bet that the risk is not going to come home to roost. It's a bet that that... Investment is not going to fail, and so when he says that he signs the taxpayers onto it, what the Fed does, and they've done this multiple times over they did it with g m they did it with um they did it did with Amtrak, which was actually um the only i think successful bailout that the United States government's ever had. but when you hear the term bailout, what they do is they um the Fed gives money to whatever corporation company that is. Um, will go and purchase um, assets, malinvestments, like he said, uh, absorbed derivatives, in order to to write the balance sheet. And then they'll sign the taxpayers, we the people, onto the debt. So think about that a little bit further, and then it'll really start to sink in how we're in such bad shape after the quote-unquote banker bailouts of 2008. So – you remember, as I covered earlier in the show, the United States isn't even paying the interest that we owe to the Federal Reserve, all your tax money. you know, All of your private income tax goes to just paying interest from the private Federal Reserve to the government. It doesn't pay any of the principal, so we just keep getting more and more in debt. And then piggyback that onto the fact that now they're going to sign on these corporations that fail. Remember, they're too big to fail because if they fail, then we're going to have you know mass chaos, martial law, all that good stuff. So they find, sign the taxpayers on to even more debt. So if it starts to click with you, if before all this garbage that we got signed on to, if we couldn't even pay the interest on the loan that we're getting from the Federal Reserve to run our country… And then we sign on more debt, and we're signed on to more of this. It's just going to get worse. Taxes are going to rise because the Fed's going to try to, to once again grab a little bit more money from us, and and just pay that even more interest. It doesn't make any sense. But once again, the population doesn't understand monetary policy. They don't understand how this stuff works, so they move into the The comfort zone, or what they think is a comfort zone of well, if I don't think about it, then it's not really an issue, and they'll hear people talking about you know financial collapse and the collapse of the euro, but most people are so concerned about football and and pop culture that they don't take the time to find out what's going on, and that the whole globe is connected through trades tariffs, those types of things. That everything is going to eventually come home to roost. It's just a matter of time. It's it's just a matter of time for this stuff to come home to roost. And what we're starting to see now are the effects of the bailout in 2008. You had what they claim is a slow recovery. It's not. We haven't done any recovering whatsoever. We just had you know over 9% unemployment for the last couple of years. And, and that's with cooked numbers because once people are off the government dole for or on the government dole for so long, they just remove them. You know, once the once they're off of the of the um, unemployment, they just remove them from the numbers because they don't count because we're not paying for them. So it really is an interesting situation that we're in, and you need to understand what's going to happen and what could happen. And when I say economic, full-scale world economic collapse, it's not what you think. It would be a slow degrade. We'll get you know, – they'll try to come out and impose austerity, and they'll even do it here in the United States. But just remember, austerity is not going to do it for you. And it looks like I'm about to run out of time, but I do want to finish some points, so I'm going to go a little bit over. And um, you guys can download the podcast once I go off air here. But one of the ways to write this is by imposing a 0% loan to anything that's going to have a municipality involved. So you take the Fed. You basically take over the Fed, and so you say, okay, instead of lending at zero interest to the big banks who then hold the money because they can make a guaranteed rate of return – they just hold the money make their profits and never let the uh, never let the money trickle down into the economy you incentivize local municipalities large government to lend out to governments municipalities what have you at 0% interest so you lend to the municipality and say or you lend to the state let's say you you lend to the state of georgia you say i'm going to lend The state of Georgia at 0% interest, $1 trillion for road projects, infrastructure rebuilds, um, high-speed transportation, those type of things. And then you disperse those, and it gets the economy going. So what happened – I mean it was a great idea. What they were trying to do here in Atlanta with a transportation referendum other than the fact that the taxpayers have figured out that once you put a tax onto us, you're probably never going to take it away. So the taxpayers said no, and that was a 1% sales tax. So I would guarantee that the population and the voting population – would would vote yes for something like that. Oh my gosh, at zero percent interest. So we we're, we're not gonna pay have to pay any interest on this, not coming out of any of the taxpayer coffers. It's just going from the Fed as a loan to the municipality on good faith and then they're gonna return they're gonna return the money. And once the return of the money is done, you know, the one trillion after they made their profits and, and recovered all of that stuff from getting out the bids, then you pay off the Fed and it wipes away from both balance sheets. So you utilize the Federal Reserve as a lending arm to the municipalities in order to stimulate economic growth at a 0% interest rate so you don't have to pay the criminal bankers back the money at interest. And as we see the grand scheme of things, we can't even – as you know 300 million people, we can't pay the interest on the overall federal loan. So that's where you run into the challenges of having – A private bank lending our government money at interest because it looks like it's never going to get paid back and then you get the easy money to the larger banks and they're not going to lend it out because they don't want the inherent risk of if it fails they can get a guaranteed rate of return even if the guaranteed rate of return is two or three percent if it's a little bit over three percent they're ahead of inflation so they're making out you know as long as Bernanke doesn't put QE3 into effect what would inflate the currency and that is through printing more money and putting more money in the money supply which will devalue your currency so i know that that was a lot of information but once again we have to have these conversations we have to know what's going on and you have to be aware that that just because you hear something and just because you see it on the television you know go do your fact checking see if that's true go look at you know, go look at different alternative sites. Look at opposing views. You know, look at a look at a Democratic view and then look at a Republican view, and, and you know, or, or slant if you will, when they're talking, when they're writing articles. Look at the two views, and if they're conflicting, then it's probably somewhere in the middle. But if they both align themselves with the same points, then it's probably um, pretty close to factually accurate. So that's what I would recommend for the for the listening audiences. Get informed, try to figure out what's going on with our economic situation here at home and and worldwide, and then just start having the conversation with people and trying to get people to pay attention because the only way that we're going to right this ship is if we get enough people paying attention and start that buzz that I talked about before like we had against CISPA and SOPA… Where you get the population buzzing around, hey, the economy, the derivatives, we got to write this stuff off because if it all goes bad or we got to put trade um, – we got to put trade restrictions on Wall Street and charge them um, 1% for each trade that they do. So all this flash trading and derivatives trading goes away, and, and it will just get weeded out, and, and all of this phony money that's out there and cooked books from from these large investment firms will, will slowly go away. Yeah. You know, Understand that a lot of the people in investment banks won't like that because you're going to be taken away from their profits, but if you don't do something, you're basically turning into a suicide banker you're not only you're not only robbing the population but you're going to kill the golden goose you're going to create a a swell of derivatives so big that when the bubble bursts, you're not going to have any money because unless you move it offshore or unless you invest it into precious metals or something like that. All that digital currency goes away. We can't pay it, and then municipalities file for bankruptcy. Governments file for bankruptcy, and then what you will probably have is you will probably have somebody like the World Bank or the IMF step in and say, well, all of this happened because of, number one, corporate greed, which is pretty factually accurate and number 2 because we don't have a standardized currency because people were artificially inflating the currency and 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 uh and manipulating markets that way so what we can do is just standardize everything we can standardize the currency we can standardize the um the currency and i think that they'll do um they'll do what's called the SDR and it's basically uh, once again phony money backed up by nothing but they say that it's backed up by something so we got to trust them and they'll implement something like that, and then say that we need to combine all the world's wealth and and then we'll make everything under the World Bank, and then have the other central banks like the fed and and other central banks around the world, like the Bank of Bank of london we'll just have those as um subsidiaries, and then you'll have your lower subsidiaries below that, but understand that's not going to fix the problem. And they will take a crisis, and this is the one takeaway from the show today. Understand that people in power will always – Rahm Emanuel even said it in the quote, said that you know, we can't let a good crisis go to waste. So if the economy starts to tank and you start seeing all this posturing for, for global governance, for the World Bank, standardized currency and stuff, that's not going to fix everything, guys. It's just going to give more power to the oligarchs so that they can impose their austerity measures all over the world and get what they wanted and all from the get-go, from the jump 60 years ago. And that's the one world government and the one world bank and enslave the entire world population. So thanks for listening, everybody. Share the broadcast. Good luck. And get a friend, get informed, and get involved.